0: countless stories in the city about the lives lived here about how the fates of others intertwine with our own in ways we can never expect or predict i'm a reporter this is my job to see to understand but there are stories behind these stories stories about terrors i've only begun to train my eyes to see Learn this scene carries a heavy burden, because once open to the darkness, our eyes can never be closed again.
1: That was the voice of reporter Perry Reed in the case we're calling "What's the Frequency, Cold Check." It was the tenth and final episode of The Night Stalker, which was released, or as we like to say around here. Dumped unceremoniously onto iTunes, March 17th, 2006. I am joined, of course, by my regular co-host. Well, he's only regular when he eats a lot of brand, Mr. Chris Deschew.
2: And a one, and a two, and a three. Bum, 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 bum. What's the frequency? Cold check. That's all I can think of. It just sounds like a goddamn song.
1: It is a song. Almost. An R.E.M. song. And also joining us on this episode is Mr. Richard Haddam.
3: I've been dragged here uh, 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 against uh, my my wishes by Chris. You're welcome. Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to say anything other than that.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad you're owning it. Uh, With all of the talk of the new Night Stalker, I had never watched a single episode, had never intended to, and now uh, I I can no longer say that I'm no longer a virgin. So much easier to make fun of something when you have no experience of it. (laughs) I mean... I, I exclusively mock things I've never seen, because once you see it, then then you, you, in a weird way, you're sort of invested. I mean, I don't know, or I get into a place of, oh, I see what they're trying to do, because you have to realize I've worked with ABC. I swear to God, I worked with those people, the studio executives that they were dealing with when this show was being done. I did a show for ABC before this, and I did a show for ABC just a couple of years after this, so... I know the experience they were going through when they were doing it. And even watching the episode, I was like, oh, boy, I can almost I
1: can almost I can almost read the network notes scrolling by at the bottom of the screen. So spoiler alert, this is my favorite episode of Night Stalker 2005. Spoiler alert for me, this
2: to me, for me, just kind of another episode. I I mean, let me put it this way. It's okay. I think you're right, Mike. This is kind of top of the pile for this show, because
1: most of the other episodes have been... It's interesting that we're going all the way back to the beginning of the series, and we are having Invisible Monsters again.
2: And mythology.
3: Well, kind of mythology.
2: right?
1: That's a question I have
3: for you guys, because even not having seen the other episodes... Usually you can watch an episode or I can watch an episode of a show and go, oh, clearly this is referring to stuff they've talked about before, or this is a big payoff. Clearly this meant something to those who are following along that it may not mean as much to me because I haven't been filled in, but I get it. This is a big payoff. But I, I was a little bit unclear if this episode was providing any of that. Did they know this was the final episode Were they – trying to do
1: that? No, they did not know this was the final episode, and we're not 100% done with Carl from 2005-2006 because there were two more episodes, and fortunately, question mark, they uh, released those scripts on the DVD release of this, so we will be talking about those two scripts, including the one that they readapted for one of the X-File reboot episodes. So we're not 100% done with Kolchak reboot. Got it, got it. Okay, so so they, they thought they were doing maybe a full 13-episode order. Yeah, and then I'm not sure when they got told they're not doing any more, but I don't think that this well, this doesn't wrap up the series whatsoever. And for me, and feel free to argue with me, Chris, because I know you love to do it, this doesn't add to mythology whatsoever. This feels like a, what What do you call it, a bottle episode?
2: The the mythology stuff that they bring up in this episode is just that, like, oh, this is the thing you've always wanted to know, Cole Jack, because I'm the monster that's going to give you what you want. And like, I'm just a trickster monster that's giving you your deepest desires. So it's not really the mythology. You're right. But they bring up the mythology because they bring up Kolchak's dead wife, which is mythology just for this show. That is the show's mythology is the whole thing with Kolchak's wife and how did she die and the mark of Cain or whatever, whatever they're going for that thing that they really touched on like once and then never brought up again.
3: I mean, as far as I know, that is the core mythology. I mean, that's that's the equivalent of Mulder's sister, right? So it's the mystery of how is what. Which, which, by the way, so I mean, again, you know, spoiler alert. 14 years later, but but the, w- one of the weird parts of the episode was that there was a scene, you know, two thirds of the way through, where it looked like the implication was that the person, I, I know we haven't really set up the episode, but the person, you know, who was the antagonist of the episode, it appeared that, like, we it was being hinted that he was the murderer of Kolshak's wife. At least I thought that's what they were trying to say, but then Kolshak's behavior didn't necessarily, I mean, you know, he didn't immediately, you know, react to that information.
1: Did anyone else feel that way? I didn't get that he... S- murdered the wife. It sounded like he was in the same in- insane asylum and he heard about the wife, but I didn't get the implication that he killed the wife.
2: No, he like heard about Kolchak talking about it. Right.
1: But I didn't get the inference as far as like, Oh yeah. And he had also killed her, but yeah, you're right. We should probably set this up a little bit better. We have this cold open of this guy getting pushed down a hallway in a wheelchair and there's something at the end of the hallway, and he's very upset about it. And the guy who's pushing him a little off balance. And then that's our cold open. And like I said, Perry gets the VO. That's the first time in this entire series that she gets the VO at the beginning and at the end. It's the same kind of horse shit that we've talked about before with the way that Kolchak does the VOs with the words on the screen and all this kind of stuff. I'm not sure why she did it unless Stuart Townsend just wasn't available at this point. Maybe, well, I don't know. That's one of the frustrating things is that, you, again,
3: seeing that part, I knew, oh, this is different. Because I know you guys have talked about how it's always obviously Colshack doing the the narration. And I thought, oh, well, now that she's doing it, it'll be an episode that's from her point of view. And then it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's all you could possibly infer from, oh, she's doing it. Now this is her journey. We're going to see the world through her eyes instead of Kolchak. He'll be involved. So I was like, oh, interesting. And then that did not happen at all. I'm not even sure she was super clear on on really what happened. <laughs> By the end of the episode, I'm like, well, she kind is still in the dark.
2: To be fair, I was kind of in the dark as to what happened as well, because
1: you clearly see her show up at the house but that's not really her I don't think
2: but is that so is it in their minds or is it is it in their minds a, like it's an invisible goddamn monster <laughs> let's
4: talk about that <laughs> I don't in a even
2: moment. Yeah, you're
1: jump in the gun here
2: but we're t- but here's the but the thing about Perry the thing that you do mention about Perry is that she's not in the episode very much but let's be honest here I'm glad it wasn't focused on her because her character has been woefully underdeveloped in
1: this show, anyways. Well, this could have been an opportunity for her, though.
3: Sure, no fair. oh, okay. So now we're gonna we're gonna get you know start filling that bucket a little bit so that you know if the uh, <laughs> clearly the shack bucket uh, it, it isn't ringing anyone's uh, uh, bell too hard. So let's uh, do the other one. But you know, go ahead with more of the
1: recap of actually what happens in the episode. So we have the VO, we rejoin the story, and we've got Kolchak working on a missing persons case. It's kind of late at night, and Perry starts talking about this birthday party, which I don't know if he was actually invited and forgot, invited, and didn't want to go, or just never invited. But it sounds like he might go, maybe, but anyway, she leaves the story. She's off on her own thing. That's where we see Jane, eventually we'll see Vincenzo, not at the birthday party, but after. And then Kolchak, there late at night in the office, gets a visit from this, again, rather unhinged guy who's played by Pat Healy. And what's his character's name? Uh, Paul, I think. And Paul thinks that Kolchak is sending him a code through the articles that Kolchak has written throughout this entire So here I was thinking, okay, now we're going to tie together some of this stuff. It's going to be like the end of the first season of Fringe, where they start to tie all of these disparate cases together and bring them all together. Um, But unfortunately, Paul's kind of a lunatic. He kidnaps Kolchak, and then we spend pretty much the entire rest of the episode in Paul's house, and him talking with Kolchak, it's almost like a a two-man play of these two guys in this little room and there's potentially... A monster at the end of the hall. And, of course, as I say that, I keep thinking about Grover. You know, there's a monster at the end of this book. So we're going to talk about that monster, which is called the Old Man. So it sounds like Paul's got a lot of father issues. And he has been dealing with this or not dealing with this for a long time. And he, uh yeah, he lives a very weird existence. Like the only thing in his main room is a toilet and then stacks and stacks of newspapers because it seems like he is very obsessed with all of the the codes that he is picking out of the newspapers. And I should also say that the name of this episode, What's the Frequency, Kolchak, it's a reference to Dan Rather and that he was attacked by a guy on the street years ago who just kept saying, Kenneth, what's the frequency, Kenneth, what's the frequency, and was beating Dan Rather all the time while he was asking that and then that kind of entered into pop culture being the REM song and then I read a great conspiracy theory book years ago that was trying to tie in Dan Rather being in Dallas 1963 with this Kenneth What's the Frequency and it gets into real murky territory but it was pretty great.
3: Yeah and that guy apparently who attacked Dan Rather he thought that NBC was putting out some sort of, or, or he thought the news networks or the networks were putting out, it's kind of a you know common delusion, they were putting out a signal directly to him and he wanted that signal to be turned off and he needed to know the frequency. So he attacked Dan Rather to find out what that frequency was so he could stop these messages beaming into his head. Later on, like 10 years later, that guy killed an NBC employee, like a security guard, because he was trying to break into NBC. Uh, He was still plagued by that same delusion and actually murdered a guy. So, I mean, it's a pretty dark ending to
1: that. So it's perfect for a pop song.
2: It's like, hey, man, nice shot, right? About Bud Dwyer killing himself on live TV.
1: Which I always thought was about Kurt Cobain, but I just recently read the Bud Dwyer thing.
2: Which is somehow way worse. Yeah. Way, way, way worse. Just like the conclusion to that story that Richard just, (laughs) oh my God.
3: Again, having only heard about the show and then finally watching it, it's pretty clear that this incarnation of the Night Stalker is, is preoccupied, like really preoccupied with that sort of, like really Chris Carter kind of level of almost millennium style, You know, the world is an existentially horrible place and and there is no solution to the mystery other than more horror and darkness. I mean, that's definitely the feeling I got from this episode. And I kind of assume that's the other episodes also.
2: I'd like to point out here that Richard just mentioned Millennium, a TV show that no one has mentioned in 2019. Might one even say people don't even know that that show existed, except for the cro- except for the crossover episode from uh,
1: X-Files. Lance Hendrickson will remind you about that if you ever talk to him, because he's still waiting for the movie.
2: He'll also remind you when you talk to him that he hates puppets and loves making pottery. If he could do that for a living, he would. I like how we both spoke to Lance Hendrickson, Mike, and neither one of our interviews are even close to being this... Not <laughs> one of them touched on anything close to similar. Uh, what do you think about on a daily basis? How much I hate puppets in Potter <laughs> and hopefully a
1: millennium movie coming soon. He's got this idea of making a pot and then have it basically fired by the fires of the uh, the mushroom cloud that will strike near his home. And then it turns into a beautiful <laughs> pot after the entire rest of the world has gone to ash. That's astounding. Yes. You're
2: right, Richard. That's the thing that we've talked about multiple times on this podcast is that this show, this, like you said, incarnation of Kolchak is just the X-Files, even down to the fact that they pair Kolchak with a female character who is a skeptic and he's a believer and there's a Skinner-esque character in Tony Vincenzo. I mean, not really as much as Skinner because Skinner was almost in every in every episode of The X-Files and later on in the run. And, you know, that formula worked for The X-Files because you had really charismatic leads in Duchovny and Anderson. And there was actual chemistry, like palpable, tangible chemistry between the two. And again, like we said before... There isn't in this show. Stuart Townsend, it's not his fault entirely any more than it's Gabriel Union's fault, but they don't have any chemistry. And you know what? This is the last actual episode of the show we're going to be watching. And you know what? I think, Mike, you and I can walk away and say that that never changed.
3: Just having the benefit of seeing only this episode, there is that one scene, which then we are told is clearly imagined by Kolchak. Where she comes and and tries to help him, and and I w- like and of course me and I think maybe any viewer just sort of looking for a you know looking for humanity, looking for a human connection, a relationship to root for. I was sort of like, oh okay, oh I I see where this is going. They they they, they work together. I get that Polshak is a lone wolf. He's doing his own thing. She clearly has some heart and now this is a moment where they're connecting oh okay great and i was really excited about that until what happened right afterwards and then until i found out that it probably wasn't real
2: which it wasn't real i mean again i don't know how to process what ends up happening in the later part of this episode because what pat healy is talking about at the beginning of the episode ends up not really factoring into anything there's like a weird body horror nod where it's like i cut off my toe To get rid of the old man, it's like, what? What this feels like is, and we've talked about this on other episodes of the show and on other episodes of other shows that we're on, this is a good idea that ends up going nowhere and ends up being too scattershot for its own good. It's like when you and I talked about antiviral, Mike. It's like, how many good ideas can you throw at the wall? You need to pick one or two and don't try to go for the full spectrum of just bizarre shit to throw at the screen.
3: When you have an episode like this, the expectation, when a guy is clearly crazy, usually a character like that is used as, you know, almost a non-human way to inject theme. Uh, You know, it's like, it's like this person, because they're crazy, doesn't have to follow any rules, doesn't have to have like a motivation that we're like, he's not committing the perfect crime. He's just crazy. So the purpose he ends up serving in a show like this usually is I'm going to magically speak your heart. It's kind of like what Chris was saying earlier, like I'm going to be a straight shot into Kolshak's soul. And so this is going to be a way to reveal to the audience Kolshak's greatest hopes, dreams, fears in a way that that feels like you arrive at something. and and that you could not arrive at in any other reasonable way because Kolsak's involved in a crazy world, so only a crazy person could speak any truth to that. I guarantee that that was the expectation probably when they wrote it, and probably for anyone watching it, was we're not going to get anything that makes sense, so at least we'll get the big thematic truths of the show that haven't come yet. And I don't think we got that, did we?
2: The thing that I wonder about with this show, because, look, we will never truly know what the potential of this show was going to be because like you said Richard you can see the writing from the studio kind of on the wall when we talked to Frank Spotnitz what seems like Mike forever ago he's said as such about the show that there was studio meddling and what we'll never know is what this show could have been or what this show was before it was turned into a cheap X-Files knockoff but the sp- the spark, the seedling of an idea, like you said, Richard, is there for chemistry between the two of them. It just, it's too little too late. It's it's really too little too late. This is the last episode. And again, like you said, Mike, they didn't know, but you're 13 episodes in. Like, come on.
3: And, and the weird part is the beginning, <laughs> her beginning narration is all about how, you know, when you know there's darkness behind darkness and then when you see it you can't unsee it again which implies that she is going to witness something that she's never witnessed and it seems to be or about to be a paid off when she joins him in this monstrous place and then gets shot and I, you know when you're writing the episode as you're watching it and imagining various outcomes you're thinking Oh my God. So the final scene of this episode will probably be Shack, and she's in the hospital and he's standing by her bed and, and she's like, what the fuck was that? What happened? And he's kind of like, yeah, honey, welcome to the party. I'm dealing with this shit all the time. And if you love me or you want a relationship with me, you know, it got my wife killed. It it's, you know, it almost got you killed. That's the challenge of being Carl Kolshak's girlfriend. And then the question becomes, oh, so how is this relationship going to develop if that's the case? Which could have been cool.
2: Well, anything is better than Jane McManus dancing at the party with those other people, right? (laughs) Uh,
1: Yeah, that was the most uh, depressing party I've ever seen. That was a pretty bad party, yeah.
2: Yeah, Kolchak's lucky he got kidnapped, right?
1: (laughs) He
3: had the better night overall. I think
1: so. The, The
2: way you have this show end if they had known the show was ending, is you have Perry Reed murdered. Kolchak goes on, and he devotes himself more to finding whatever.
3: But that would be tough, because, I mean, don't you need to have some investment in that relationship for that murder to me? It's like, the wife's murder is nothing but, okay, we we just need to set up, you know, context. But, I mean, the the, the joke about the X-Files is... People really did tune in to watch that relationship. And they didn't really, they fed that relationship less
1: than you feed a cactus. And people still were so into it. This episode had moments for me. Real good jump scares, like when Paul's caseworker shows up, Mr. Kim. And when Paul shows up and and zaps him with a, a taser, a rudimentary taser. I was like, okay, you know, like, hey, this guy's going to come. He's going to, you know, I know that this is coming, but it still was just like, oh, get out of there, get <laughs> out of there, kind of a, a thing. Yeah. And then when uh, Carl's got a thermographic camera for whatever, right? Reason, what? Uh, maybe he just carries it around with him, and when he gives it to Paul, and he's like, oh, go ahead, you know look at the end of the hallway and you'll see nothing and then when he holds it up and there's an actual shape there it's just like oh shit now it's on so I was like okay these are some real good moments here like I said this is my favorite episode of the show but that doesn't mean very much because the rest of these episodes have been so poor so it's just like this is like a good trip to the doctors you still have to go to the doctors but at least like you didn't have to get a you know, a rectal exam or something. What is it our
2: friend Father Malone always says the world's tallest midget?
3: Yeah, 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 there you go. Well, okay, so, so let me, let me circle back to something that you questioned before, which again seems like pretty low hanging fruit, but still it was too high for, uh, the, the, the world's tallest midget. In the first scene where we're in the newsroom, uh, you know, the office where Kolshak works with Perry, She comes by, she mentions, okay, they're throwing me this party, and everyone knows about it, and Kulshak's like, I don't know about it. And she's like, no, it's okay, I, I know, you don't have to keep the secret. And he's like, no, I really don't know about it. I actually thought that was really cool, because I thought the joke was, they literally didn't invite him. But then later on, you find out that they did invite him, which then not only made it like, less fun to go, oh my gosh, Kolshak is such an outsider that they don't even invite him to this party. But it also made it, well, no, they did invite him and he's insisting, either insisting they didn't or he's insisting they didn't so he doesn't have to go. Which then seems weird because it's like, well, dude, you know, that's kind of throwing cold water on whatever relationship I'm hoping for here. And then the third weird part of all of that was he doesn't appear to be doing anything in office. He doesn't even have a story like, oh, I'm waiting for an important call, or I'm meeting someone, or there's a reason I'm here. He's literally bouncing a ball off the window. He's not, do- it's- he's not engaged
1: in anything. So th- I-, I was confused by all of that. I thought for sure, okay, this guy is creepy as fuck. Let's not invite him. So I was really hoping that it was going to be more of that social outsider kind of a thing.
3: I mean, at least that plays into his character. That would have been cool. But tell me, who's the dude at the party, though? The dude who was talking to Perry? Is that a
1: guy? Is that a regular in the show? Yeah, that's Jane McManus. He is their roving photographer.
2: Imagine a character that's wo- woefully underdeveloped, yet one episode they pretend to kill him off. And we're supposed to care about that. Which we don't.
3: Well, I was going to say, are we supposed to like him? Or is he like comic relief? Or what role does he play in the show?
1: You kinda of just mentioned all of it. <laughs> like he's he's almost as shaggy, but not as endearing, and he doesn't need as much.
2: The character you're missing that is good is Alex Nybee. Which yeah. is unfortunate because he, Eugene Bird is
1: as Alex Nybee is actually one of the better aspects of this show. And he only was on what do we say, in three episodes? And what does he do? What's his what's his deal? He worked at the morgue. Oh, okay. Okay. It is funny how there's sort
3: of the the parallels to the old show, like he's the John Fiedler. Yeah, he
1: was not Gordy the Ghoul by any stretch of the imagination. He was actually <laughs> yeah, more the Ghoul. <laughs> helpful to That's Polchak. Right. I mean, I've gone around with Chris about this as far as is Jane completely superfluous? And I always come around to the point of yes, I don't think that he really needs to be there. Because he's more like, we, we've we talked about this before as far as like Perry takes turns with him as far as being the damsel in distress. And neither one, because they've split essentially what could be one
2: character into two characters, neither character is very well developed. Cause like that could be one character theoretically. Right. Mike, I don't think I'm like, really stretching on that one. But Jane McManus now here at the end of the show, kind of a post-mortem of what we've seen. Jane McManus and Perry Reed could have just been one character.
3: Having not seen the pilot episode of the more modern version, did it, did it feel like in that pilot episode, like did it feel like, Oh, it's like they, they obviously want this character to be a particular thing, but it just never ended up happening. Like like oh clearly he's the goofy friend but then oh I guess not I mean was there anything like that going on
1: was Jane even it, was Jane even it was Jane even in the first episode of the show I'm pretty sure he was there in that garage when they first meet Kolchak who's already beat them to the scene and he calls him by the wrong name or something like Jane calls Kolchak by the wrong name I'm pretty sure he was there and somebody for perry to have like an as an ally against kolchak and that's kind of that same role that he's played but then he's kind of to fill you in a little bit more richard he's gone back and forth and he's mostly swung over to kolchak's side where it's just like okay yeah you're saying it's monsters then it's probably monsters let's go look at for the monsters but he's he doesn't even have that like that that passion or anything where he wants to you know be the new monster hunter and like you know he's like he's nowhere near uh mutt from constantine or something he's not like oh i want to be the next monster hunter
2: and he's not even the lone gunman from the x-files
1: he's just kind of there
2: he's there he
1: is definitely there
2: just like oh by the way richard let's also point out again since we're kind of now just talking about the show Vincenzo, yet another woefully underserved character in this version of the show. But, hey, you got to actually see him in this episode, which I think is
1: the first time in, like, three episodes. So. Yeah, he he doesn't like to show up very often.
3: And that was weird, too. Yeah, that was a weird little moment with him because, again, he didn't. It's like It's like at a loss for doing anything else. They just have people continue to echo the. You don't understand the darkness that Kolchak lives with, you know. Kind of party line, which feels like the like that's kind of what Vincenzo was saying. Like whatever he was saying in this episode, it just felt like it, it was just reinforcing this notion that Kolchak's a dark guy in a dark world, and you know the the end. Instinctually, I'm like, well, in the other show, Vincenzo was the you know. Nemesis antagonist. You know, he wasn't the monster, but he was the real life person saying Kolchak, you're wrong. And then Updike was like, I'm like, oh, so is is McManus? Is James McManus sort of was he starting out like the Updike, or I guess not, or he's not even the
1: Marmelstein. Speaking of Monique Marmelstein, oh wow, yeah, good callback.
2: A certain someone may have sent us a certain signed picture by a certain Monique Marmelstein.
1: Well, you
3: know, you, you, you guys have an admirer, you know, out in the <laughs> podcast first. Down at the Warner just, Brothers lot. Just, just, just put it on the pile with all the other gifts you get from your <laughs> listeners.
1: <laughs> Boy, that is a pile of one. Be careful, Chris. You might die uh, under the pile.
2: <laughs> the pile may collapse on me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think the thing about this show is – you know, we've had some interviews where we've talked to folks like Frank Spotnitz, like Eugene bird. Their, their hearts were in the right places, but it just, it failed in spite of, uh, I, I mean, look, it was a good idea, but at the same time, I still kind of question remaking a show that was essentially made a lot better 20 years after it came out. Anyways,
3: I think ABC executives went okay, we own this show called The Night Stalker. It's one of our properties. And recently, a very, very humongously popular show called The X-Files was on TV. So maybe there's a way to meld those two. But the the problem being, anyone tuning in for The Night Stalker isn't going to get that because there's no humor, no charm, no fun, and and then anyone turning in for the X-Files is not going to get that either because they're getting a warmed-over substitute. So you end up, I mean, I, I tell you, I feel Frank Spotnitz's pain. I I listened to that interview, and I'm like, yeah, he, you know, he had an original idea that's like, well, maybe this is a way you really can, can service the character and the fans of the old show, but update it a little bit. And I think ABC was just like, no, you're X-Files guy. Just give us X-Files. And please
2: bring your X-Files compatriots in with you to write this episode. Vince Gilligan is credited as a writer in this episode, and we all know Vince Gilligan is a good writer. It's it's a disappointment. And look, I know you go on the Kolchak Facebook pages or anywhere where they talk about the show, and this show gets piled upon constantly, almost I wouldn't say unnecessarily because some of it is deserved, but this show gets piled upon, and it some of it is deserved, but at the same time, a lot of those folks didn't even watch it. We watched it. We watched it. Like we watched. We suffered for our art. (laughs) Suffer, my children. But it's it's not that bad. It's really not. It's just not much of anything, to be perfectly honest.
3: I will say one thing, and, I, and I'd and i love to hear your opinions on this. Though I thought the look of the show was really ugly. Like, I, I just thought, what is going on? It's like super, like, really brightly lit, and then also extremely dark. Like, it was almost physically uncomfortable to watch, just in terms of, like, I mean, The X-Files was a beautiful show. I even liked the look of the original Night Stalker TV show. This was kind of unpleasant to look at. And I think, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say maybe that was because they just they wanted it to be
1: jarring and jagged and handheld. And, but I, I didn't love the look of the show. What about you guys? I can totally see what you're saying as far as, I mean, this episode in particular was very, very stark. And the, the lighting in Paul's place was really harsh um i kind of thought that worked in service of it but as far as the stuff outside of paul's place i don't mean outside of his actual house but i'm talking about like the world at large yeah it looks like warmed over garbage
2: and and here's the other thing about this show right i mean we have to talk about when this show came out the show show came out in 2006 and look richard i mean you mentioned the x-files the x-files is a beautiful show until it went to la and left vancouver And once it left Vancouver, the X-Files became similarly drab to this show. And this show, it feels like if you showed the show to someone and asked them, when do you think this came out? I think someone would be able to put it within a couple years of when the show aired, because it has that mid 2000s original CSI
3: feel to it. You know what? Yes, that's what it looks like. It
2: looks like CSI, like shitty CSI.
3: Yeah, and and yeah, camera movement for no reason, just to, you know, keep things interesting, quote-unquote. I honestly try to consciously remind myself watching this episode, I'm like, well, don't compare it to the original, because obviously it is not that. But what if you just were changing channels and landed on this show? What would you get from it? And I think that's when I arrived at that place of, Wow, this is just pretty grim. This is just like really unpleasant. You know, poor Reggie Lee, who who by the way was on Grimm when I worked on Grimm. So I was like, oh my God, there's Reggie. <laughs> you know, the, the ten, you know, five years before, uh, seven years before Grimm. Look, he got work. Um, so I was so happy to see him, and then so disturbed to literally watch him bleed out <laughs> right in right in front of America. Like, oh fuck.
1: And then turn into a monster, maybe. To your point from earlier, Richard, that is where he comes out and is trying to implicate that Paul murdered Kolchak's wife. So you were absolutely right. There is that moment in there of the implication, but yeah, Kolchak never seems to go off. Yeah, right. Okay, I thought it was fucking crazy. I'm like, it's the, he's like, he came back with
3: blood on him, and he, yeah,
1: okay. And what it seems like is that the old man or whatever this creature is that is been tormenting Paul. Like we all like we're initially, we're supposed to think, Oh, it's all in his head. And then we think, Oh, well, maybe there's a creature. And then we think again, okay, maybe it's in his head. And then when Kim comes out and he's like, yeah, it's all, uh, you know, he tried to kill your wife or blah, blah, blah. Then it's like, okay, now he's, Is that really him? Is that something else? What's going on? Is he trying to use Kolchak in order to get him to murder Paul? And basically, yeah, that's how it goes. Because then Perry shows up. And when Perry shows up, I was just like, well, that's really weird. How did she know where Kolchak was? And then she gives this excuse of, oh, I traced a call. And it's like, okay. But then when she comes into the apartment or into the house, I'm just like, what the fuck are you doing? Get the fuck out of there. And they're talking so loud in that front room. I'm like, what are you doing? I thought the
3: exact same thing. I'm like, what is going on? And not only that, but why is he not saying, why is he not crazed? Why is he not like, there is a man in the next room who murdered my wife. I have found the man who killed my wife and I'm going to go kill him. And Perry's like, no, no, don't do it. And, like, I was expecting some of that, but then I'm like, well, maybe I misheard it. Maybe I was just making that up thinking that's what I wish was happening.
1: It, it was confusing. That's Stuart Townsend, though. <laughs> you cannot uh, get uh, a rise out of Stuart Townsend. He was, If he was ever invested in this show, he was definitely not by this point. I've never seen him even raise his voice. You know, he's just the deadest of deep Yeah, deadpan. except it was funny at the end
3: when when he grabbed him and he did the uh, the rigs line from a uh, lethal weapon
1: he's like you think your old man's down there let's go see him together that's the only time i've seen him emotional in this whole thing so i was just like wow that's very surprising so i think maybe that also helped kind of you know push the needle up a little bit for me when it came to this episode like oh oh shit he's actually emotional he's actually going to do something he's defending perry wow this is this is fantastic and he manages to murder this guy.
3: Yeah, it does. And it, that is what you want. I mean, look, you, you want this guy to be killed. Yeah, there's, there's, there's no part of it. It's just, well, no, just arrest him. I mean, it was very satisfying, uh, horribly enough, to watch Kulshak, you know, do what you think is throwing him to the lions, essentially, right? And, and, and yet, still unclear how that guy then ultimately died. Unless he just hit the wall really hard, and um, and and then unclear how we're supposed to feel about Kolchak, his wife's murder, and his relationship with Perry, and his hallucination. So a lot of things kind of left on the table, which I don't know. Maybe the next, maybe those two scripts, uh, you know, or the the reconfigured one will uh, explain. What do you think?
1: I'm not holding my breath.
2: Yeah, I wouldn't hold your breath because the likelihood is
1: you're not gonna get a satisfying conclusion. Yeah,
2: which I already I thought for- they concluded it, right?
1: As far as what with this episode?
2: No, the other episode, like the one
1: where it's oh, like yeah, to the right. sea there was or two parter right in the middle of the season, which again it's like what the fuck are you guys doing?
2: I thought that they had already wrapped that up.
1: Yeah, the source part one and part two, episode six and seven. Wait, wrapping, wraps what story up? They pretty much try to, so we had a little bit of that mythology, the whole, like, he's got this weird mark on his wrist, and so did his wife, and so do these other people, yada, yada. And they bring that up in the first episode, I think a little in the second, more in the third, maybe in the fourth, they just kind of throw it on. And then episode six and seven, they really go all in on mythology. And then after that, we don't hear about it really. I think there was a mention of it, what, in nine Chris? Something it seemed like, like that. there was just a real quick throwaway kind of thing. But yeah, they pretty much they didn't wrap up the mythology, but they just were like, here's some mythology. Now we're going to go away from it. Now we're back to Monster of the Week. The mythology,
2: I mean look, in the X Files, it's there until it's not. And then but it always feels like it's still underneath everything. In this show, it's almost like they forgot
3: about it, like you said. Like, did they ever help anyone in this show? Like, does he ever... Like, in the X-Files, they ultimately were kind of theoretically helping people. Like, okay, well, we've solved the weird murders in this town. You know? So you you kind of were... They were called into a case and then they solved it. I mean, did, does it ever feel like they were doing it on, on this show? Was that ever, like, a structure of an episode? <laughs> Thanks, for <full laughs> you help something
1: gosh usually they were like a day late and a dollar short when it came to so many of these cases i think they helped apprehend some people like i'm thinking of burning man which was a very generic csi episode yeah and like the five people you meet in hell like but you never get that warm fuzzy feeling of like this person's gonna go off and live a wonderful life now that these people have solved this mystery
3: right right i mean at least in the old shack show it was never warm and fuzzy but you're at least like well okay so i mean i guess you know the moss monster is not going to kill anyone more that
1: one's done with yeah and the other problem you know i kind of misspoke when i said you know monster of the week because that was the thing with the show was there's no monsters you know and this episode is typical of that as far as you know, I think timeless was the last time we saw a really like a halfway decent monster, and that was just basically a rip off of uh, the Night Strangler again, where it was just like, oh, this person comes out every thirty five years and needs to feed. So it's like, okay, great, we've seen that. You know, Jeepers Creepers. Yeah, Victor Tooms. Yeah. So, oh yeah, almost like a
2: show that did it better. Exactly. Look- I, again, I think at the end of the day with this show, the thing that I really come away from this show with is a just general feeling of I want to watch the X-Files. I essentially watch an episode of the X-Files every time I watch an episode of this to kind of remind myself of what this could have been. And then I realized that ultimately at the end of the day, we kind of, in my mind, should have silenced some of the people that were like, this is fucking garbage. It's not... Really, it's just just watch the original show because it is the original show is better. But also the other thing is do not pretend that the original show is perfect, because if you're going to say how bad this show is, you also kind of have to grapple with the fact that the original show has a lot of nostalgia baked into it. And a lot of people are unwilling to, they're just like, well, the original show is great and the new show is garbage. Have a uh, sounding chamber. Everyone agree with me. Yes, 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 yes. That's kind of what it feels like.
3: Yeah, I I, I totally agree. But I will say that pa- I, I think part of that feeling is engendered by the fact that the original show traded so much on charm and and humor and and it, just the, the charm of Darren McGavin so that it's easy to remember it fondly, you know, because it's like someone, it's like, oh, that was my favorite uncle. (laughs) And then this was like a really scary substitute teacher who wants to murder you.
2: (laughs) Oh no, I I completely agree. I mean, the thing about the original show that is why it was so successful is because Darren McGavin is so charismatic. Look at why supernatural has been on the air for 13 seasons. Look at why the X-Files has had two reboots it's because you have people in the roles that matter that are charismatic that people can get behind that people care about and like look at shows like I don't know anything Jesus Christ stranger things any show that people watch they like the characters because the people in the roles are charismatic and good at what they do I'm not saying Stuart Townsend is bad as what he and what he does or Gabriel Union I'm just saying they aren't in this show and that's a bummer because It could have been like the original show. They could have really played up the charismatic nature of Kolchak as opposed to making him, like you said, Richard, Mr. Dark and Gloomy all the time.
3: Well, yeah, and this is, you know, obviously me arguing my taste, but when you hang your hat on dark existential nihilism and horror, I mean, I I actually think that's a pretty, you know, that's a pretty narrow target to hit. And then even when you hit it dead on, what you've achieved is is pretty cold, which is a flavor, and and that's you know you don't not everything has to be you know um, aspirational and, and life affirming, but that's a that's a hard thing to hit over and over and over again and feel like you're you're adding up to something because I think instinctually people are watching a TV show looking for a l- long term storytelling and 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 a and a part of that long term storytelling being the development of relationships that you get caught up in and, and have a stake in those relationships succeeding. And that's what gives you tension. Oh no, this, these people might break up or they might die or, or whatever you, and, and that's easier to achieve in a way. So I, I think another thing you had with this show is, is the result of the studio wants one thing. The network wants another thing. The people actually doing the show want another thing and then none of those things get achieved. And and what you're watching is what is the leftovers, you know, what got left behind the stuff that was so unobjectionable or, or that no one just had the energy to fight. Okay. Here's what's left. And we've all seen shows like that. And I think this is one of them. And it's, it's like no one's fault because the studio didn't want to ruin this show. They wanted a hit. So did the network. So, they all thought they were doing the right thing,
1: yeah, it's that old, what success has many fathers and failure has none, or how's that go?
2: You know what I'd like to point out that I was actually the one who gave Jason Voorhees his mask, said eight different people in the documentary about the series, but yet but yet no one will claim responsibility for Jason takes Manhattan being filmed in Vancouver. So, yeah, it's that same shit. It's like you said, no one wants to take responsibility for this show being a failure. And I'm not blaming Frank Spotnitz, but someone should shoulder some of the blame other than just saying it's the studios, invisible men on the other side of an invisible mirror or like a two like a one way mirror. You know, it's it's at that end. Look, I mean, Richard, you work in you work in the industry. So, you know, that it's a convenient thing to blame. And honestly, a lot of people probably blame it for their own inadequacies in being able to craft a worthwhile story to tell.
3: What none of us have spent five minutes doing on this show is talking about what a shit writer Vince Gilligan is. Because, you know, he isn't. He did good work before this. He did good work after it. So that's part of what you factor in. And again, it's personal taste, but it's like... All right. Well, you know, Frank Spotnitz did some good work before this. He did some good work after this. So we're going to assume he might not have been the number one reason that this was not successful, either financially, ratings wise, or or even creatively. And I obviously he kind of admitted it. He was like, "Look, this this was not what I wanted." So uh, in, in a way, he's saying, you know, my uh, my aspirations were high, and uh, this time we didn't. We didn't get it. and I've, I've, I've been a part of a lot of those.
2: Well, and the thing is, I mean, like, we could even tie this into something that, Mike, you and I talk about on another podcast, the Twilight Zone 1985. And we did those bonuses about the 2019 Twilight Zone. You have Glenn Morgan on there who wrote for the X-Files. He wrote a lot of really great X-Files episodes. And then he goes on and writes some terrible Twilight Zone 2019 episodes. And again, we know he's a good writer. We've seen him write. Other things well, it's just these weird missteps. In this show, it just seems to be misstep after misstep after misstep. The they, there's never a time where there was a slowing of momentum with the missteps. It seems that the missteps just continued and never stopped.
1: <laughs> they picked up. The same thing happens to who I feel is you know probably one of the greatest writers of the 21st century, which is Max Landis. You know he constantly is getting undermined by the studio. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and sexually uh, sexually assaulting women as well. But hey, you know what? No big deal. It's okay. On a podcast I recorded yesterday, I got to call Brian Singer a child rapist. So we're just keeping with the theme of let's just burn it all down. Light it on fire and watch it burn. Wow.
3: Wow. Full circle.
2: Richard Haddam, not on this episode, by the way. <laughs> he wants to still work in Hollywood when we're done. <laughs> Chris and Mike, on the other hand, never going to work in Hollywood.
3: You know what is weird? Someone someone has been calling around impersonating me on podcasts. So maybe this will turn out to be one of those. I will say at the trial,
1: and 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 may and maybe a helicopter would land on you. Yeah, oh God! Please. All charges <laughs> will be dropped mysteriously, just like in the Kevin Spacey trial. Exactly. Oh Jesus! Oh my God! Now <laughs> I'm depressed.
2: Now, now I'm
3: more depressed than I was watching. Uh, what's the frequency, Callback.
2: So, Mike, since this is our last. And I know that we're going to talk again about the the scripts and the X-Files episode, but I want – because I've already kind of given mine. I want to know what your kind of parting post-mortem final thought
1: Jerry Springer style is on Night Stalker 2005. Well, first off, it was not my kid, so the test came back. I'm happy about that. (laughs) But that's Maury, not Jerry Springer. Oh, shit.
2: Okay. (laughs) What, she want him and his chicken (laughs) tech?
1: So – 2005 Kolchak is not as bad as people make it out to be, but it's not good. And of all the episodes, I still stand by this being the best standalone episode.
2: I would, I would be inclined
1: to agree with you.
3: Wow, I feel lucky that it's the only one
1: I watched.
2: Yeah, and be good to each other. <laughs> no, okay, maybe a little too, little too on the nose. <laughs>
3: Let's get on to the important stuff. When do I get to come back and talk about Darren McGavin and, and one of those episodes?
1: You get to come back next month when we're back to the original run of Kolchak from 1974. We're going to be talking about, what is it, The Nightly Murders. So I'm very excited to have you back, and it'll be great. So until then, Richard, what's been keeping you busy lately? Uh, season two of Titans. We are halfway through filming, uh, we're breaking the last handful
3: of episodes, and we're ready to come back at you, I believe in September, on a DCU Universe uh, subscription only in the United States, and it's on Netflix everywhere else, Canada and beyond. So uh, yeah, Titans is uh, taking up my days.
2: And let's not forget, your show was not cancelled after one season, unfortunately.
3: Or one right. episode? Shit. Jeez! Oh, shit. What the hell was? I'm going to find out what happened because I think there is a story we're not hearing. No uh, one, you think? no one. <laughs> well, come on! I mean, how you, you premiere a show and then you announce that you've canceled it before the other episodes of like on, on what planet does that help you as a network?
2: The planet of DCE, the the DC universe planet is bizarre. It's it's weird. It's weird.
3: It got great reviews. I heard it looked great, uh, and then I heard it was canceled. So there you go.
2: All kind of in the same day.
3: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, anyway, that's what I'm doing, and uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Doom Patrol doing well though. So uh, there you go.
2: And your your show seems to be doing well.
3: Titans is doing well. Uh, I mean, in a weird way, it might be you know one of the one of the more. Uh, talked about shows i've ever worked on considering that you know you can only watch it if you pay for it and even then it only shows up like on your microwave oven or something
2: god damn this guy's got his own shovel and is burying his own show what's going on here i can watch it on my ti 83 right
3: It's, it's a great show if you can manage to see it uh but people do seem to be liking it so uh yeah and uh and second season this is no secret uh we meet uh And and I wrote the episode, uh, Superboy and Crypto. Nice. So, uh, yeah, get ready for some uh,
1: boy dog action.
2: (laughs) Boy, I'm going to be watching a video about that later tonight, so.
1: I think that's a special tab. Are we still on the air? You're talking about an American hero. And Chris, what is keeping you busy these days, sir?
2: everything and uh, nothing at the same time. Uh, I'm doing a little podcast called the culture cast where you can find me talking about movies with uh, some friends of mine. Mike's on there. I need a Richard on there at some point. I think, I think it would be beneficial. Maybe have him watch something good for once. I don't know. So he does. So so Richard doesn't think that I hate him. (laughs) You're coming with us and watching culture. I'm dragging (laughs) you along.
1: I think we all agree on that, man. Yeah, <laughs> there is a good cop bad cop <laughs> yeah. vibe on the show.
2: There is, and I prefer I don't prefer bad cop. I prefer good cop kinky cop. So my my handcuffs have feathers on them. They're like fur lined. Uh, but now you can find me on the Culture Cast. Mike and I also do another podcast with our friend Father Malone, where we talk about Twilight Zone 1985. That is dreams for sale. You can find that at Twilight Zone. 85.com. And then I do a little Tales from the Crypt podcast called Chronicles from the Crypt. And that is over at ChroniclesFTC.com. Where can people find you, Mike, when
1: you're not here? I do a podcast called The Projection Booth, which you can find at projectionboothpodcast.com. And every once in a while, I let Chris on the show, though I always wonder why.
2: And don't forget, guys, just so all your original Colcheck fans are aware, 2005 is done
0: that works for me. If you look into the darkness long enough, your eyes adjust and you start to see that there are evils in the dark. But in seeing, you learn a terrible truth that you have not found these evils at all. But rather, they have found you.